Hey, I'm Steve Orlando. Welcome to a special episode of Power of X-Men. Enter now the age of apocalypse, Shiga, with your hosts, Dayspring and Scott Free. The name's Cable. Remember it. And the only people who can stop Apocalypse are the mutants known as Dayspring, Scott Free, and Michelle. This is Captain America, and we need to defeat Apocalypse. Steve, we are so happy to have you on Cinco de Mayo and the day Doctor Strange comes out. What? I'm happy to be here. And I've certainly only had one tequila, actually one mezcal. So uh, will I be more relaxed than previous appearances? Maybe, but let's find out. <laughs> Shut the this fuck coffee up. right here. This is a giant Pizza Hut cup of coffee. So don't get too excited. Man, I haven't had a drink since my flight back from Vancouver. I'm just, I'm dying to go out and drink right now. I know, look at your face, Scott. That's a lie. When did you get back from Vancouver this morning? Like, <laughs> <laughs> No, actually, I got back from Long Island this morning. It was on Saturday. But here's the thing. I had five glasses of wine on my flight. And I became so dehydrated that when I landed, I was like, uh, I need to like cleanse for a couple of days. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that can happen. Um, <laughs> we both came back from New York today and I certainly was there to party last night and had a 9am meeting. So, but you know what? So did my editor. So it's all fine. And he was also out late. So we were at the same level of, um, let's say professionalism. Did you party with Jordan D. White last night? No, well, no, we were not at the same party. Uh, and Jordan actually has a really amazing place outside of New York now. So it is not him. He is not the person I met up with. He's got like, he's like living the, the life I used to live in the Hudson Valley before I moved. So, and respect because you can have a much nicer home for more, obviously, than in New York and certainly than in Boston where... I don't want to talk about it, actually. <laughs> what 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 the uh, what the average Boston apartment costs? Scott just bought his place. Uh, yeah. we're we're trying to buy. Wait, do you live in Boston? Oh no, uh, in Jersey. Oh, so. my boyfriend is from South Jersey, and when we look at prices down there, I'm like, maybe we could go back. Like it's it's, it's doable. Um, I, like I feel like an adult with like like I'm, I'm still still adjusting to it. Where are you at in Jersey? <laughs> Uh, Princeton. Is that is that more towards northern? Oh, wait, I can already it's, find out. Are you Taylor Ham or Pork Roll? I I am Pork Roll. Um, Princeton's like right dead center of the oh, state. It's, it's the mythical. It's the mythical Central Jersey. So it's, you're actually Taylor Pork. I yeah. have no idea what the fuck you guys are talking about. Yo, man, I I've taken. I'm I'm New Jersey and by injection, my friend. So like, I know a lot uh, <laughs> <laughs> about that. Shit. Um, no, so there's a, there there is a there's a delicious uh, cultural meat that you eat. Uh, from New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's either called pork roll in the south or Taylor ham in the north. Uh, and there is a I think it's a I think it's like a Daily Show skit where they have the then governor of New Jersey on who is stumping for Central Jersey, which is supposedly this like mythical place in between. And they keep giving him these either or questions like, you know, uh, I don't know, like the Eagles or the Giants, for example. And he always takes these middle of the road answers. And then the big one is, is it pork roll or Taylor ham? And then he looks at the meat and says Taylor pork. 
But uh, to answer your question, it's the perfect breakfast meat. You should definitely hunt some down if you eat meat, because I actually don't know. Um, It is delicious. It's kind of like, how could I describe it? It's like a, it's like if you threw bologna and salami in the fly teleporter and out came this like delicious, crispy, somewhat tangy meat product that is hard to quantify, but delicious in a breakfast sandwich uh, and anything related to breakfast or anytime, to be honest. I love, love breakfast sandwiches. So that's hard to say. I, I don't know. I don't know this conversation at all. And I live in Hoboken. I'm in Hoboken. But you should wait. You are from Jersey and don't know what pork roll is. Well, really no, no. I, I'm from Florida and my husband and I moved to Hoboken like 10 years ago. So I'm kind of new. I've been retweeted by the state of New Jersey two times. And it's like <laughs> the proudest, which if you guys don't follow New Jersey on Twitter, it is the best state for a long time, and maybe right now, their image was Grogu holding the state of New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> is, was it really? It's an yeah. amazing account. On Bruce Springsteen's birthday every year, they just say, happy birthday, dad. Uh, I'm looking for a state of New Jersey Twitter they, right it's, now. It's, they it's, it's at yeah. NJGov, I'll tell you right now. It's, it's pretty good. It's Phil Murphy on April Fool's Day posted like an official proclamation about making the middle finger the state bird of New Jersey. And that was like one of my favorite things that I've seen. Um, but anyway, New NJGov, it's a great account. I have been retweeted twice. I don't remember where the first one was. The second one was after seeing um, the Birds of Prey movie because it's my boyfriend's favorite comic book movie solely because much of the violence in it is predicated on Harley Quinn avenging a breakfast sandwich. Yes. Uh, and, and, as he, and as he told me in New Jersey, if you destroy someone's breakfast sandwich, there's basically nothing that is not uh, allowed when it comes to reciprocity. So um, I said that and I got fucking retweeted by New Jersey. <laughs> My mind is so blown right now. I love all this Jersey talk right here. Well, I mean, I'm happy to, I, I, I'm a convert, you know, I'm from upstate New York, which we like to think we're about in New Jersey, but it's really just the same fucking shit. Uh, that's the reality, let me tell you. Um, and, uh, but I'm learning, I'm, I'm sure learning. I have Wawa Christmas ornaments now, which is really all that you got to know. That's, that's all you need. <laughs> so, Steve, tell us, let's, let's start with your origin story. What was the first comic book you ever picked up? Uh, so I actually have an extremely good detail-oriented memory, so I can tell you exactly what it was. It was West Coast Avengers 16. It was a back issue I got in probably 1987 at a flea market, maybe 89. I'd have to look at the publication date. Um, but it was about Hellcat and Tigra fighting over who was going to get, well, at that time, Patsy Walker, uh, I think still, or just the cat, because they were fighting about who was going to get the cat costume, um, which I guess Tigra must have worn when she lost her powers, but then it went to Patsy Walker and she was on the road to becoming Hellcat. And they eventually like team up, uh, and, and fight Tiger Shark and they beat him by shredding his fins with their cat claws and everybody's friends. Uh, and yeah, that's the first comic I ever read. Um, and I still love Hellcat to this day, by the way. So clearly it had an impact on me. Hell of two kitties. Sidebar though. She's getting married to Tony Stark. How do you feel about that? (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Fair. Fair enough. Like, I mean, I I would only point out that Marvel's famous for a wedding swerve. Let me, uh, let me point you to the X-Men wedding. 
I would love it because I think it was in the Marvel Almanac or one of those issues where they flash forward and they talked about the wedding of Emma Frost and Tony Stark. So when I saw Hellcat there and I love Hellcat, I love Patsy Walker to death. She was one of my favorite characters, but I was like, man, it should be Emma. And I was like, wouldn't it be great if they pull like the Colossus and Kitty wedding where like it doesn't happen and Emma just steps in and we have like the event of the century, which is the wedding of Tony Stark and Emma Frost. See, yours is much nicer. My version is that Patsy just like takes her skin off and she is Emma underneath and, <laughs> and she's like, bong. Now you're now you're now you're Kreko and Tony. Get with it. No, but that part, that part, Pat, whatever happens, it will not be that. Let me tell you. Okay. 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 I'll write the book, and then that's definitely what's gonna happen. <laughs> uh well, like in that vein, who who's your favorite superhero growing up? Um, well, my favorite like comic book pulp, like, you know, vigilante character, whatever in the broad scheme has always been the shadow. Uh, and he's not a Marvel or a DC character, but uh, he's always been my favorite. I even dressed up as that dude. Actually, if you buy the shadow Batman hardcover from dynamite, cause I did Batman shadow at DC and I shadow Batman at dynamite. Uh, there's a picture of me from the early nineties where I was the, sh- at the shadow for Halloween. And I let them run it in like the title page. So like, <laughs> I'm a huge, huge shadow fan. Um, but the thing is I came to comics, you know, I did get back issues and, uh, back issues and stuff at, uh, like flea markets and shit like that. Uh, but I also, because my father sold sports memorabilia, I collected, and I didn't really like, uh, at least the kind of sports that have sports cards. Um, so I collected a lot of non-sports cards. So as a kid, I really liked elf and I really liked the garbage pal kids, but I also really loved superhero uh collectible uh like trading card sets and the thing is is that i didn't read a lot of comics yet i just got whatever was in the back issue so i didn't know who like mattered and who didn't so this is one like i'm always thought of as a deep cut guy but it's really because for me like i i immediately that's when i started loving martian manhunter that's when i started loving alan scott if you're talking about dc cards and i didn't know that they were like lesser known characters relative to like superman batman the trinity and things like that um so i and i still love martian manhunter um, and in the case of on the Marvel side of things, my entry point was not just cards, but it was the pre 1992 uh, animated pilot Pride of the X-Men. Love Pride uh, of the X-Men. I, so I, I wore that thing out like it was a fucking freshman bottom. And I just like. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. And uh, so I and the console game, too. And the answer for both uh it's hard to pick. It, 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 it's either Colossus or Dazzler, but they they were they were my people from the start. Dazzler, listen, cool as hell. I don't know what else to tell you. The, the little finger guns, it's awesome. I I was talking to Larry Houston a couple months ago, and he was telling us all about like Pride of the X Men and how when they aired it to the network, they were like, "Oh yeah, this totally bombed." And I was like, "I never thought it bombed. I bought that shit on VHS, and like you, I wore it." out like i was just watching it all the time and it's totally you were really animation. surprised when wolverine was fucking canadian in the show right <laughs> like I mean, 92 show because you thought he was you thought he was calling everybody dingoes and- <laughs> <laughs> i mean listen I'm, I'm from florida i'm an idiot i never noticed any of the discrepancies with the accents to be honest with it's you it's actually really impressive because if you play them next to each other you will see that one sounds like the fucking crocodile hunter uh and the other one sounds like he's going to like apologize for throwing you a boot uh good on you uh but it is and the animation is actually really good in it i think well it's toei and toei eventually goes on to do sailor moon which is my favorite anime of all time 
I'm a Sailor Saturn person. If you want to talk about uh, Saturn, I think is the is the death one, right? Yeah, she's the yeah. final guardian. My, I'm Neptune. I'm the I'm, I'm the aqua violinist. That's my favorite. I mean, cousins. Yes, I remember. Cousin. <laughs> cousins. Fuck you, Deke. Did you see the trailer for Sailor Moon Cosmos? I haven't yet, but I I am. A, so I will. So I watched what was available at six a.m. on USA in New York when I was younger. But mm-hmm. I, the farthest I ever got was Sailor Saturn. So I know that there's like, Too much and I don't know if Crystal continues to be a soft remake or if it goes in its own direction. So like, I know about, for example, the Sailor Starlights and things like that, but just from Wiki. So I don't know if what I saw, I didn't see the trail yet, but I did watch the two movies that came out like last year or two years yeah. ago. So I don't know if we're going in the same direction. I'm finally going to get the Sailor Starlights or things like that, or it's just going to be its own thing. It's a direct adaptation of the manga. So it's like panel for panel. It works. It doesn't work. I think Sailor Moon Eternal, like the movie, was actually pretty decent. But like the first couple seasons of Crystal, uh, it's a little disjointed. But that's what happens when you do a panel for panel recreation for something that was meant to be consumed in comic book manga format versus I mean, television. Listen, the new the Crystal theme song is great. Uh, I, I I would I, I that was the show that I watched when I was running on the treadmill, and like that is a good running on the treadmill song. If you I hear, listen hey, to that song, and you want to run to Sailor Moon theme, like <laughs> I listen to Moon Pride like a hundred times a day, always. And then when I'm flying, I always listen to Moon Moon Pride. It is insane. Sorry. Anyways, Scott, I'm throwing it back to you because this can turn into a Sailor Moon podcast. Sorry. No, uh, I, I respect it. Um, I respect it. Scott hasn't uh, seen Sailor Moon yet. I I've, I have read my book Star Wars from Heavy Metal. It's basically my Sailor Moon slash uh, like like. I mean, it's Sailor Moon meets 300 kind of thing, but I'm, I'm very proud of it. Available in the direct market now. But anyway. It's <laughs> nice, Avail- nice tie-in. <laughs> Available on iTunes, but, uh, but, but it's actually not. So. Well, that leads nicely into our next question. You wrote Midnighter and Midnighter and Apollo. And what was it like writing a book featuring two really iconic queer characters who are also in a relationship? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a extremely egotistical uh, and be a sadist. So I think most people, if they weren't in a relationship at the beginning, so I broke those people up. Um, but that was for a reason. Um, I mean, listen, the non-joke answer is, I mean, a huge honor for that to be my first book and a huge responsibility. Because I think I was, if not the first, one of the first actual queer people to write those characters. Uh, probably not the first, I'm sure someone snuck in. Uh, but at least the first to write you know, them in any ongoing capacity. Uh, but I did break them up at the beginning and, and, and folks at the time sort of had a lot of presuppositions about that that were dispelled when the book came out. But for me, it was because there, there was a big difference. You know, when we met them in their pre-DC life in Wildstorm, they were already together, but they had been, uh, on the road for f- like five or seven years. I forget before you met them at that point. Um, so like they had already done the work to like be, know that they were the one and, 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 and know that they were in love and all these things. But in D.C., they had been dating for like like three months, you know, and, and, and to my knowledge, like it was one of Midnighter's first relationships, you know, so it felt rushed. It felt like they were using the stuff that wasn't canon as shorthand. So I broke them up at the beginning so that I could actually get a chance to show them doing the work of falling in love and actually meeting each other in a more like textured and rich way. Uh, so in that way again it, it was a huge responsibility but i was excited to be able to do it because to me you know obviously like relationships are work 
Uh, and I've always kind of been weird about how when, especially, especially gay male characters, but queer characters in general are introduced. Like there seems to be a push to like couple them up and marry them off as soon as possible, um, effectively to chasten them. And I didn't want to do that with Midnighter. Like, I think it works to, it worked, works current working, uh, you know, to an extent with Wiccan and Hulkling, but I'm not going to say I didn't think it was weird that they got engaged when they were 17. When I was 17, I couldn't decide what the fuck I wanted for dinner. (laughs) I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. So, uh, but I was willing to give that a pass because like, you can do that one time, but it can't be everybody. Uh, So it certainly couldn't, we, I wanted to show Midnight and Apollo actually working for their relationship, having problems, overcoming them, because that's what real life is like. And the most respectful thing we can do with representation is to, you know, make these characters as, as complicated and and, and textured as we are, as as real people are. So that's where I was coming from with that book. I'm very proud of it. It also has one of my favorite gags ever where Midnighter kills someone with a meat grinder and he holds it up to the camera and it says, uh, tough meat. So uh, I think that's probably the apex of my career. And it was the first book I ever did. So there you go. <laughs> Can only go down from there, I guess. Um, well, like, like uh, in, in a similar vein, um, you created uh, Somnus for like X-Men and um, Somnus' backstory is obviously rooted in like the idea of the closet. And now he finally sort of gets to like live his authentic true life and it obviously resonates with a lot of like lgbt fans um like what is it like to have the chance to both like write and create a character like that uh every time you get that opportunity it is a, you know it, it is a challenge uh but it's one that we have to rise to and, and for me i've been really lucky yes i created somnus but i also created a lot of new queer characters and new characters in general at dc like uh I mean, off the top of my head, the new Neon, the Unknown, the new Firebrand were both queer. So the challenge for me, at least, because I've been here, you know, I'm kind of like the old man of queer comics now. I've been an edit since 2014, uh, which is coming. I mean, it's almost eight years. It is eight years now. Um, I, I try to never repeat myself. So with Somnus, one thing that has changed in my life is I moved to Boston, where I live now, and I'm surrounded by a lot of queer elders. And I truly imagine that when they look at, you know, my life being 37, uh, needless to say, you know, the life of like younger folks who are like in their early twenties, it's gotta be beyond surreal to them, right? Folks who were in their mid seventies who couldn't really safely express, you know, their truth almost anywhere for most of their lives uh, to see, you know, me, a huge jackass making like douching and cocksucking jokes in public in front of our straight friends is gotta be one thing. Uh, and then to see like the, the younger generation who probably uh, for whom many of those struggles seem like, like ancient history. Right. You know, like I, I like I, I'm of a generation where I, you know, there, there wasn't prep or things like that uh, for a large part of my life. And, you know, I watched Magic Johnson talking about getting HIV, but, you know, like my younger cousins uh, who are, you know, in the, in the, in the queer community, that's like, I mean, that's something they read about in a book if they know about it at all. So with Somnus, I wanted to do something to honor that previous generation, the people that were sort of struggling before I, well, before I was around in real life and before the, you know, the premier mutants, the X-Men and things were, were around in the Marvel universe. Uh, and, and I can't obviously give my, my, the, the, my, my actual neighbors and things a second chance to live a queer life in their prime, but we couldn't do that because of Krakoa, right? And comics are supposed to be about sort of like, 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 
aspirational in many cases. So, you know, I am, you know, I, I am the Akihiro character in that story. And, and well, I can't do this for my, my friends that I live near uh, now in the world of Krakoa, you know, someone living a good, but compromised life. You don't have to settle for that if you're a mutant because you, because of the resurrection protocol. So it was a chance to sort of do in story what I wish I could do in real life. How did you feel about the Krakoa situation when you first heard about it and how that sort of shifted the dynamics of that metaphor with the X-Men? Um, Sorry, that's my Oprah question. <laughs> well, I mean, like a lot of people, I had suppositions that were wrong uh, once the books actually came out, because I think it's no surprise to people that, you know, we creators talk and gossip like anything else. And I was like, you know, and, and it's like telephone, right? So what I heard wasn't even what it was originally going to be or ended up being like. And I had my fears, um, especially about the exclusivity of Krakoa being uh, someone who's, you know, being a bisexual person. I'm sort of hesitant about any exclusive space, you know, because uh, I, I tend to worry about, I think, systems that people tend to always find a way to they always find a way to, 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 to separate people. And so being someone who has regularly had their, their identity questioned by people who have no fucking business to do such things. Um, I was like, Oh, so, you know, it's, it, it's, it's mutant Island. And, and soon they're going to be, you know, like soon it's going to be, well, you know, who isn't mutant enough, who isn't, you know, who has, who doesn't have mutant parents or whatever other bullshit. And that turned out to not be true, you know, because humans can come if they're invited. It's not really completely walled off and things like that. So I had my fears. Um, but as to the changing of the metaphor, I, I think it was time to reassess it. And, and I think that Jonathan did a very good job with it because at the end of the day, look, it is a metaphor but being a mutant is not being black. Being a mutant is not being gay. Uh, and so, and, and I think that what he did is maintain the sort of ex excluded otherness that mutants have, but it's always seemed, you know, th there are a lot of questions with the way that it's been presented. I, we all understand the illusion, but at the end of the day, why do people fear and hate mutants, but not inhumans? Why do people fear and hate mutants but not superheroes because you know i mean spider-man happened to be born human but it's not as though he doesn't have strange powers so the issue is just that they happen to be born this way you know um so i think reassessing it was was due and it refreshed it really well and um you know it's not as though creators like myself and and everyone else in the x-men office past and present have not you know have been unwilling to sort of interrogate it for all the good and the bad and i think that's the other key you know i took a lot of the incorrect and sort of bad faith assumptions i had and i put them into brimstone love and made a character out of it uh and i think you'll i mean look you can see what we did with the thunderbird issue nyla and myself you know like the idea i mean that's a great example right like the idea of mutant island seems really good to a lot of people. And it seems really good to a lot of people, even when they I mean, I have plenty of friends that say that they would live on gay island, hypothetically. <laughs> um, but then, you know, but it doesn't seem good to everybody. There are some communities that have experience with being, you know, walled off and having their own exclusive communities. And th there's a real reason why Nyla and I put, you know, Thunderbirds saying, oh, you know, I died and two white men went and made themselves an island. Self a reservation, pardon me, and called it freedom. You know, like people are gonna have different perspectives on this thing. And I think that's how you make it rich you know, I keep saying rich and textured, but that's how you make it real. 
I, accepting that mutants are not a monoculture, just like none of our cultures are, is, is, is the way forward. You had a big week because Thunderbird came out and so did Marauders too. Thunderbird, that issue was so good. That was like jaw-dropping good, what you and Nyla did. Mostly Nyla. I'm just, I'm just here to help in that book. <laughs> I was just like, well, what was it like like working with, with Nyla on this? I mean, she is incredibly talented. She's incredibly creative, vastly intelligent and adaptive. Uh, and so comics came really easy to her. I think that's what happens, you know, when you're someone who was an actress who then got into pro wrestling, like she's used to seeing and learning new, new sort of crafts that are related, but not the same very quickly. And she took to this super, super fast, you know, because at the end of the day, the storytelling in wrestling is not unlike the storytelling in comics. Um, so, I mean, it was great. Certainly I, I was there to help her with formatting and things like that. And sort of, and of course the minutia of fitting into the Krakowin era, but the arc in the book is all for her. And, and, and she put the, you know, honestly, like she put things in uh, that, that made it what it is, you know, the, the line about the reservation, the, the way that the way that the, uh, the police talk to, to Thunderbird, the way that Thunderbird's uh, grandmother's reservation views that's the biggest thing that one of the first conversations we had was that she didn't think that she didn't think that for native folks being a mutant would be a big deal. You know, like so many other people you see there's, there's a lot of intersectional prejudice against mutants, but for her talking about how before colonialism, two spirit people, broadly speaking, the queer people uh, were celebrated and accepted and it wasn't seen as othered. It was seen as something to sort of put on a pedestal, um, she didn't think that they would see the divisions that other people do. And I, that instantly, I was like, this is, you know, this is what's going to set this book apart because it is not what people expect, you know? Uh, and so, so much came for her from her and she just gets it, man. Like the, the, the one-liners, the, I mean, we couldn't have him say surprise bitch because that's her catchphrase, but, uh, but, but Nyla's incredible, you know, and I would, I would, I hope we get a chance to do more Thunderbird stuff with her because she, she took an assignment and more than made it her own. And by the way, notwithstanding, David Cutler brought so much to that book as well. You know, we all, we have our roles, you know, co-writing and artists, but we were all, I mean, broadly just co-creators on this book. Um, so much of the thought um, in Thunderbird's new look, which I think surprised a lot of people and maybe folks didn't really know where it came from. That's why we put a data page that gave an in-story explanation about it into the book. Um, I mean, Nyla and I had our ideas, but so much of that came from David and his own First Nations background, you know, like, like I, I, it's, it's, it really was a holistic creative experience. It's sometimes just because of like deadlines and things like that, you don't always get in a book, but that was not the case here. And I think it, we were better for it. I am so shook right now. I did not know Nyla was a wrestler. <laughs> I'm looking at not, only is, she, right not only is she a wrestler, she's the first trans woman world champion in the history of the business and the first trans woman to be signed to a major federation her moniker is nyla the destroyer i love that we are chasing her down scott and we're having her on the podcast like i am well obsessed. you should go you should go see her when aw comes through uh comes through jersey which i'm sure they will um i'm sorry what's aw aw is the federation that she works in so i mean she's on tv twice a week you know I mean, if you if you have a tv or i mean she's not on every show but she's on frequently um but yeah no nyla nyla is incredible i mean the reason we had been acquaintances because i know a lot of folks in wrestling mostly from the con circuit 
but the reason this came together, we had only like sort of like shot the shit in uh, on Twitter. Um, but she was at a pay-per-view and came out and, and her gear was mystique inspired. And I was like, fuck Milo is, is an excellent fan. Um, it's a deep hole, man. If you get into the wrestling business, my friend, my friend, the dark, uh, my friend, dark Sheik is not on TV, but she's another trans woman wrestler who sort of built her as she transitioned to build her character around the dark Phoenix saga. She's dark Sheik because she was Sheik. Uh, and then when she transitioned, she became, you know, fire incarnate, life incarnate, dark Sheik. And she's also a huge wrestling fan uh, to the extent that she has taken her garden in her backyard and built a Krakoan gate uh, in her backyard. So X-Men fans, wrestling fans, there's a lot of crossover. <laughs> and, and, and that is how I met Nyla. I was like, if she's wearing Mystique gear, she likes the X-Men. And so yeah. I sort of like, you know, I dropped her a DM and was like, hey, like, do you want to write an X-Men book with me? She's immediately like, my number, here's my number. <laughs> <laughs> she's great. I love that. So Steve, who is your favorite X-Man? I think you already answered this earlier, but officially. You know, you really got to give me subcategories because there are so many to love. Uh, do you want, like, who is my favorite X-Man that people actually care about? Who is my favorite uh, obscure X-Man? Okay. You know, like, my favorite X-Man that people care about, <laughs> which is just me being morbid, but like, because, and, and I shouldn't say that, that a lot of people are aware of because everybody's every character is someone's favorite character. I put Mammo Max in the X-Men man thing issue. And like, people are like, Mammo Max hive, right? Rise up. <laughs> There's a hive, but, uh, uh, it's hard not to say Colossus or Dazzler. Um, you know, I am both part Russian and part gay. So like, like yeah, you have to like both of those characters. Um, and also like <laughs> Colossus's costume is just a stripper outfit when he doesn't have silver skin. God, he looks so hot in those go-go boots. Like, you know, he was that, partying. Like, they were just splash. like, well, his his pants turned blue when he came in for him. And they're like, how does that work, Dave Cockrum? But, uh, <laughs> anyway, so I love those guys. But that joking aside, like, if anyone who reads Marauders, my favorite character is Cassandra Nova. Like, I could write her doing anything. I, I And she's she is also someone I was with from day one. Like, I ever her first appearance, I was there. So the answer has got to be, actually, it's probably got to be Nova. Like, yes, she's a villain, but villains are sometimes the most fun. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a joy to write her every single time. So I was talking to Jordan D. White last year, and we got into a conversation about Nova being a mutant or not being a mutant. And I'm curious how you guys finally landed on her being a mutant. Wait, I'm trying to think if it's been officially stated. I know we saw her birth in... In- oh no! It's stated. It's it's very blatantly said that she yeah. that she is in the in one of the data pages of the first Marauders issue. So it's, oh, there you go. Uh, it actually made so the Krakoa actually made it easier because uh, you know, we framed it as a conversation that Pride Pride wants an answer. So she she asks uh, Reyes, Doctor Nemesis, and Sinister to all you know sort of in, investigate Nova's background and draw their own conclusions. But at the end of the day, I mean, it, it's easier than ever to say that Nova is a mutant because they've said that Sinister is a mutant and he literally Rachel Dolezal'd Thunderbird's <laughs> mutant gene, his X gene to, to pass as a mutant. So if he's in the Quiet Council, as they say in the data page, like there's really no question. Um, I mean, they, they get into it more. I mean, if you if you read that page, but the long and short of it is whether she is, uh, you know, Xavier's actual from... Uh, is it Sharon Xavier? Is that Charles's mother's name? I think it's Sharon. Uh, it, whether like she was uh, like the, you know, the eggs split and she's really his fraternal twin 
or whether she's a mamadre that, you know, copied his DNA and then grew in the womb. At the end of the day, those were not conscious actions is what Reyes says, you know, like the actions of that mamadre, if that's your take, were like the actions of a planaria. So one way or another, she was born as a human, or not a human, born as a mutant. Uh, the other things are kind of semantic arguments, but that's sort of where they land. You know, whether she is a weird, crazed psychic being that copied someone's DNA in a non-corporeal state and became corporeal and then grew consciousness, or she's literally a twin who got possessed by that. It's kind of all like before before scene one. Like um, so in the current context, at least, you know, especially with Sinister there making decisions while literally just injecting himself with stolen native X genes. Uh, you know, she's definitely she's definitely uh, a mutant in the current context. Well, well, like com- coming off of that, um, like what's it like? Like, what's your approach to writing a character like that who, both like in universe and out of in in universe, has a lot of like baggage almost, like you know, Genosha and just everything. Well, I mean, so first of all. I, and this is going to sound more cavalier than it is, but everybody has baggage. Uh, I mean, I mean, Bishop killed maybe even more people, probably not, but still killed thousands of people throughout time in Messiah War. And nobody is like, why is Bishop the captain and commander? Yeah. Um, you know, and he went uh, after baby Spalding, poor baby Spalding, our Messiah. Uh, and, you know, there was a time, though, it's been retconned that Gene fucking killed an entire galaxy. Uh, you know, broccoli so- people don't count. Sure. Uh, um, you know, there's a crazy I mean, gene stand in me coming out. Uh, so, but but that's, I mean, that's sort of the joke answer. The real answer is that it's not as though she, the world doesn't think she did these things, right? Like the things that happen to Marauders, it sort of is, uh, you know, you were talking about the Krakoan era. It's kind of like, you know, you got to take the good with the bad. If everybody on Krakoa gets blanket amnesty for what they did before, everybody on Krakoa gets blanket amnesty for what they did before, not just the people that you fucking like. Um, and, you know, so it's not as though she didn't do those things. Pride's very aware that she did those things. Um, but, you know, as well, from a writing standpoint, the thing is, is that she's not suddenly nice. You know, the, the thing that Jean succeeded in doing after her initial flood of emotions, uh, you know, before that, Cassandra hated mutants more than anything. Now she hates everyone else. Like, the, like but she's still Cassandra. Like, uh, she just will defend mutants in the same way that she would do anything to destroy them before. And she's not like a good person. I don't think anybody on the team har- harbors any illusions. Um, and in her own mind, you know, I've been thinking about it, like, it's it's clear hers is not a redemption arc, at least not in any current time frame. Um, but she also doesn't want that. I think even if she saved as many people as she killed in Genosha, she wouldn't think that she was redeeming herself. She would just say, "Well, I did that, and now I'm doing this." And you know, you you know, I'm not going to explain either one. So, I mean, it's it's actually, like I said, it's not that hard because it's not like we're saying the, that she did not commit these, these crimes. Um, but also, as I said, like there are, there are mass murders all throughout. Uh, I mean, there's another mass murder on the team, whether we like it or not, that story with Bishop happened. Um, you know, uh, apocalypse has also probably killed hundreds of thousands of people. They weren't all mutants to be fair. And Jim, 
Sinister is literally a gene thief and appropriating mutant culture and he's on the fucking council. So I, what about the answer is that we lean in, you know, there's a reason that Cassandra's like, Oh, you know, when I kill, and of course she's a, a piece of shit. So she lies about it. She's like, when I kill a few thousand people, you know, everybody, everybody loses their mind. But when Apocalypse and Sinister does it, they get a council seat. What do you think the difference is, you know, uh, you know, cause she is, she's a button pusher. Um, but that's also what makes her fun, you know, and at the end of the day, I think that the way that we have her now uh, makes her a great antagonist. She certainly doesn't think that she's villainous, but the thing about her is that she's still just as unpredictable. Like the switch to protecting mutant kind really just changes that one thing. But to be clear, if she woke up one day and thought that fucking murdering Magneto and Charles was best for mutant kind, she would do that shit in a second. Yes. You know, um, she's not really taking opinions on what's best for mutant kind. She's just doing what she thinks is best. Um, so, I mean, it has been, it's been a, it's been a great energizer for the book because like that woman does not give a fuck. Like I'm very excited for, I mean, the, the preview for Marauders three is out and it's her first, I will spoil not any plot thing, but I will say that like, she meets gladiator again. And her line is like, gladiator, is it my birthday? Like, she's just excited to see him because, you know, she made a fool of him last time. Because he wet his jumper. That was an iconic line. And she definitely is like, I hope you have a diaper on this time. Like, he, <laughs> like she, she goes for it, you know, like, and, and it's fun because when you have other like very high, I mean, the Kim Crimson are really up their own ass. And it's just fun to have her there and just be like, well, that's that's adorable. You know, <laughs> like it's cute. It's you know, because that's the thing. I mean, she says, oh God, is that an issue two or issue three? I think she said it says it in issue two where she's kind of like, well, I would almost admire the things you're doing. But, you know, you're doing it against mutants. So I guess I just have to kill you all now. So <laughs> it's, it's it's almost too bad. Steve, it actually makes perfect sense that Nova is one of favorite characters, because now that I'm looking at Marauders, one, you have her going face to face with the Shi'ar, we're getting Gladiator in the next issue. But then you also have that wonderful scene between her and Jean, and Jean is wearing her X-Men red outfit. And that is like a fan favorite series that is rarely referenced. And I think this is one of the first times it's been referenced in the Krakoan age. I mean... I thought the Gene Hive was going to be angry at me for there, but they both get wins. So I, I was hoping they wouldn't. And, it, and they weren't, which is good. Like, because at the end of the day, here's the thing. Like, I expected they would be angry that Cassandra doesn't just say that Gene, like, spanked her. Um, <laughs> but also Cassandra lies. Like, this is the thing. Like, she would never, if Gene really did all the things that it appeared and they were lasting changes beyond that, there's 0% chance that Cassandra would ever admit that to her anyway. You know, um, so I was very happy with that scene. So thank you. Because, yeah, like she did accomplish something. I mean, uh, of course, because she's Jean Grey. But at the same time, like I still got to have Cassandra saying, like, pick up this mess. You know, like I went crazy horrible. the second I saw that panel. I, I posted it immediately on Instagram because, I mean, everyone, us crazy Jean stands. We love that X-Men red look. And you gave her a pony in it as well. And it's also it just harkens I, back to I gave her a pony. Doesn't she? Does she have a ponytail in there? Oh, a ponytail! I yeah, was a ponytail. So, <laughs> no, not like an actual pony. A high pony, high pony gene. Well, that was that's all. Let me tell you. If something cute happens in the book, it's Eleonora. Oh, um, but that's why we're a team. Dots. Helmet. I'm so excited. By the way, like again, that's in the preview for three. But it was like we soon realized, like, oh, Cassandra has to have a helmet too because she lives to troll Charles. Uh, but hers has to be much cooler and evil looking. And sure enough, she does make one. You'll see where how she gets that helmet in issue three. But 
we realized like, yes, if Charles is going around wearing Cerebro all the time, Cassandra has to have one that both looks more menacing and also has no other function than trolling Charles. I haven't seen the preview until this very moment. And I'm just seeing that it's kind of like a Cerebro meets Hella helmet right here. It looks so fucking badass. Kudos to you guys for giving us this. Well, so you'll see how she gets that in issue three. But yeah, I was just like, well, they were like, you could give her a wig or a helmet. And I was like, helmet, because she everything helmet. she does is just to make, it's just to punk Charles for, for trying to kill her, by the way, in the womb. Like Gladiator's face, though, on page three. <laughs> Holy fucking shit. Boyfriend is fucking angry. I'm here for it. I mean, I like Gladiator a lot. But I mean, look, the, the things things will be happening. I'm really people have been responding really well to the to Zandra's uh, arc as well, and 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 I'm happy for that because she's it's a complicated it's a complicated place she's in, and you'll see her make some moves in issue three, of course, as well uh, that I'm that I'm really happy with. She gets some good moments because again, like I mean, look, her aunts are Deathbird and Cassandra Nova. Like it's fucking wild. What a family. To to circle back a little bit, like. Who's your least favorite X-Men? Give us a T. Don't hold back. Doesn't it have to be that guy that blows up? Isn't he canonically the worst one? Because he <laughs> one time. Oh, I'm forgetting what his yeah. name is. And we reviewed that issue or that series last year. Worst X-Men ever. The redhead, the ginger. Um, and he had Nate Gray at his table of like worst X-Men. Like, fuck that. <laughs> Nate Gray? Worst X-Men? He, in the series, there's like a table designated for him at like a gala he goes to at the end. Oh. And it's like, it has like the worst X-Men there. And it's Joseph, it's Nate, and it's Cyclops. And I love all three of those characters. So. I got to think, uh, I don't really believe in bad characters, but I'm sure there's someone out there. You know what? Just to show my weird musings and what I found in research, there's a guy whose only power is that he turns things into ice cream. Uh, and he is my least favorite. I couldn't even tell you his fucking name. But, I, do you uh, know who that is, Scott? There's Soft Serve. That uh, you can tell me anything. <laughs> uh, yeah. I will. Uh, let me, let me say this. Um, I was really excited when I was reading about the pre-Xavier team of mutants from, uh, I believe it's the Hidden Years. And then when I read when I read the book and they all just had basically the same telepathy powers, I was extremely disappointed. So this, so I will say that like what I the thing that angers me is when there's too much power duplication. Like people, these these, these characters can do anything. So like um, that that I will say that I've been most disappointed when like I get excited for an idea that has interest. Like oh like what were mutant like teams like before Xavier, and then they're all just like madman era people with the same telepathic powers and i was a little let down um is there another answer i mean the, the the ice cream guy does suck pretty bad but you know what i could make that good that's the thing you know like he could turn fucking wolverine's adamantium skeleton to ice cream so what am i saying you know like <laughs> wolverine so steve what was it like coming on board for Marauders, I had you on my other podcast, Masters of Comic Books, and you sort of hinted that there was a big announcement coming. And I'm really glad it was Marauders because I recognized you and thought I had been on this <laughs> podcast before. Uh, <laughs> I emailed you from the same email with the same chain. It's really cute. You think that I remember email? <laughs> I, remember, I remember faces all the time, 100 percent, because I spent 10 years in retail. Faces and uh, and names, but email. Wait, what kind of retail did you do? 
Wine retail for 10 years. Wine? In case you thought that I had never had uh, a shoot job, that is wildly incorrect. <laughs> I was also a lifeguard for eight years from middle school into college. So, um, Stop, you must have been an amazing lifeguard. Or <laughs> <laughs> my lifeguard life, again, read Starward after having metal now, available in the direct market. But um, Sidebar though, a lot of our listener questions came in and they're just like Steve Orlando, so dreamy. Steve Orlando, why does he have to wear a shirt? All that fun stuff. Just uh, well, let's prolif let let's let's proliferate that because the reality is that the, the pandemic has really like taken my non-shirt tendencies back a couple pegs, but <laughs> let's not break the illusion. Um, you know, much like I'm like the reverse Batman. I just never stand up. I'm only show myself seated, seated down, seated down, seated or sat down. Um, mm. you guys know what I'm talking about? There was a rule for a long time that Batman couldn't be shown sitting down. And that's very yeah. real. Wait, I didn't know that. I have no idea why. And it doesn't exist anymore, but it's real. You know, when I, when I used to work in publishing, I interviewed for a job at DC Comics in their book publishing division. And I had to take an editorial test. And one of the things I circled on it was Flash doing this. And they told me that was their like secret answer or like the secret, you know, test there because Flash couldn't be shown doing this because it looks like he's hitchhiking and Flash can't hitchhike. I don't know. I know. I mean, it's sure. You know, why not? <laughs> uh, um, was there a question about? Yeah. How did you, how oh, did yeah. you come into Marauders? How did you come into Marauders? What was that process? <laughs> like did Hickman recruit you? Did Jordan D. White slide into your DMs? What was the... Uh... I think Jordan got my email from my friends who are already in the, X, in the X-Men office because uh, Jordan does not really use Twitter. Uh, yeah, he's off Twitter. Got, which is enviable. Um, <laughs> uh, how did it happen? So people will like do like a Charlie from Always Sunny like conspiracy board and be like, oh, Steve did Curse of the Man thing X-Men and then Steve did Magneto the Mutant Force. Uh, clearly this was always coming. This was not always coming. The reality is that both of those books, I was like, I may never write the X-Men again. So I got to do as much cool shit as possible. There's a reason that Nova is also in Magneto the Mutant Force. And it's because she's my favorite character. Um, along with Skullfire, who's also in that. But, um, but I stuck around Marvel and I have always been very good friends with Vita Ayala. And I think they knew that I was looking for something new. And at the same time, Jerry was taking over X-Men. So Jordan reached out to me and uh, he, he actually said I could do a couple different things and, and I could come up with a book uh, on my own. Well, I'm always coming up with books on my own. I could come up with an original concept for a title or did I want to take over Marauders uh, because Jerry was going to be leaving and they wanted to continue the books, a legacy title. And the thing is, is I'd already, I was already reading Marauders and it's, you know, it's very clear that uh, the first arc, despite the team having a dual mission, uh, focused a lot on the Hellfire trading side of things. And there's nothing wrong with that. I thought it was fucking awesome. But it was a great opportunity for me to go back and look at that first issue where they said they were also going to be rescued mutants that couldn't get to Krakoa and, and, and build a book out of that. And, and build a book out of that because, you know, disaster, like rescue and relief is something, pardon me, that is really important to me personally, like, I, I, I never know, like my friends in like my lo local circle, I can't stop talking about it, but I don't talk about it online a lot, but I mean, I've become uh, close with Jose Andres who owns world, who runs world central kitchen. You've probably seen him feeding Puerto Rico or in Ukraine right now getting blown up as he tries to feed people. 
Uh, and I actually went and I, when Hurricane Michael hit Florida, I went there and I helped feed people for a week with him uh, after the hurricane hit. So um, when I looked at Marauders and I saw that this was supposed to be a rescue team, I was like, this is, you know, I lived this. Like, never mind the pride is, you know, has, uh, has always appealed to me, uh, us both being Jewish um, and us both being plucky. Uh, now she's running a team that actually does something that I feel really, really passionate about. Like it was just like, there was no question for me that this was, this was the direction to go in, especially because it's not like, it's not me like running my mouth about shit that I've only read about on Wikipedia. I've been there, you know, going through condemned cities, bringing people who have nothing, you know, a hot meal three times a day. So it just all made a lot of sense, I guess, is what I'm saying. And never mind that I got to pick this team pretty much from whoever I wanted. Um, and, and, and I had just created Somnus at that time. So it all just sort of fell together. And, and because I had this personal experience, I was like, yes, we have to pursue the rescue aspect and lean into it, which is what we've been doing. Was, was there ever a pitch or like a story that you were thinking of that just didn't make it before you could land on Marauders? Like, did you honestly consider doing your own thing from scratch? Yeah, I mean, of course, of course. And there are aspects, but the thing is, is that like things never go away. They, you know, they're, they, they, they linger uh, like, like a creative version of pig pen. So um, there were certainly things that I had planned uh, and there were pitches that didn't end up being what Marauders was about, arc pitches that is. But never say never, you know, like some aspects of what I wanted to do in this hypothetical other book are going to hopefully find their way in in the future of Marauders. And that and, and that might go for this these other arcs that didn't work out, you know, or might not. But, um, you know, not to give you a, a boring creator answer, but if I blow them here, I can never do them. Uh, so hopefully the answer is I get a chance to do them and, you know, down the line. But I know that some of the things like the other book was going to be the other book was going to be a team book uh, and, and aspects of what it was going to focus on, I think, are going to make it in uh, probably in 2023. So, you know, once that happens, if I'm back on, I will then retroactively confirm it. But until then, I can't say a damn thing. OK, fair enough. Cool. When you took over Marauders, did Jerry do and give you any like advice? Jerry uh, is always giving advice, uh, sometimes at 3 a.m. because he lives in California. Uh, 3 a.m. for me. Um, I can't recall specifically, actually, because we talked a lot. I mean, Jerry was incredibly supportive. Oh, and you asked about Hickman. Here's one thing I'll say. Um, the story from Rodgers, Jonathan, before he sort of stepped away as he has, was involved in putting the new Marauders book together. And um, the story we're doing about the first generation of mutants uh, and, and this, this two billion year old mystery, like it was my idea, but it was Jonathan that encouraged me not to sort of sanitize it, but to make it even bigger and to make it uh, like a, this as, as huge as possible and to run with it. So, I mean, I, we were, we were involved in the handoff, but he was definitely like, I mean, had just started writing Inferno when I came on, but when you read the pitch, I mean, he did take what was this, this was going to be, I think the second or third arc. And he was like, no, this is your first arc. And not only is it your first arc, but this is like gotta be enormous. And, and, and I'm going to get completely behind it. So he actually gave me some extra pieces. They're going to make it even more relevant. Um, so, while I was not one of the people that was like day one with Jonathan um, before he teleported away to whatever his secret Marvel project is that you will see soon, 
hopefully, uh, he was there to say, not only do I like this, but you have to like double and triple down uh, to, and to, to, with what you're doing. So you had asked about him and I forgot to answer that. Jerry, um, look, I mean, Jerry is, I mean, he, he's there all the time. I mean, he's, he's, he's in the slack all the time with me personally. He did encourage me to go for <laughs> bigger, uh, more well-known characters, but that is a frequent fault I have, you know, like if it was me, it would have been, it would have been like the ice cream guy and, uh, ruckus and I don't know, like, the blow up dude, you know, like, like, and then, and they would, four people would have bought that and loved it, but that's not really what Marvel's looking for. Um, so he did what Jerry did is encourage me to, to, to aim big, you know, ask for the big piece. You never get the big pieces. If you don't ask, you never get the big things. If you don't ask, uh, and, and you know, to put a team together that was going to be volatile and surprise people. So, I mean, it's basic advice, but it's also what he did that was so good on the previous run. Um, and, and, you know, on, on a nuts and bolt in a nuts and bolts way, Jerry is still there, uh, you know, both going through not just, you know, what I do in Marauders, but what everyone does. That's the, that's the nice thing about the X-Men office. It really isn't like any other office I've been in. It's not just Jerry. We are all there supporting, uh, and keeping each other honest and pushing us to not rest on our laurels and do the best work possible. And that's not just Jerry, you know, it's Vita, it's Teeny, it's Kieran, I mean, it's everybody. I, I I don't need to just list the whole office, but it is everyone, you know? And, and I think that energy hopefully comes through in the books because we are all just as excited, if not more, uh, than the folks that are reading the things. I have been obsessed with the X Slack since Jordan told us about it, since Rod was commenting on it, since Leah was telling us that you guys drop memes in there all the time. Like... Well- I, don't, I think if you know me, I'm not the one dropping memes. Does that really seem like a steep thing? But it does happen, yes. Um, but I've heard a lot of great things about Hickman. Everything, everyone has talked to about him. Like we've interviewed people who are comic book sellers all the way through fellow creators and editors. I mean, Hickman just seems like a really great guiding force in the books. Uh, he is. And I mean, Jonathan is incredibly smart. He's incredibly creative. Uh, but when it comes to other creators, it's also, it's also very special that he is extremely supportive. Um, you know, there is, uh, it's a very competitive business. Um, and all of us, myself included, are, are, are guilty of ego. You almost need to have one so that you don't just get left behind. Uh, and so many, and again, even me, I'm not like just talking about everybody else. Uh, you know, there can be a tendency to, you know, to say nothing because you want to make sure that like everybody's stories are good, but that yours are a little better, you know? Yeah. Uh, but that is not Jonathan at all. He's completely unintimidated uh, by other people's success and wants everyone to do as, as, as well as they possibly can, uh, whether his name on it is on it or not. And that's truly special. Uh, you know, like he, he really is a great creative force um, in a way that surprised me, you know, cause I know I, I we had met briefly once like, God, probably in 2016. And it was like, oh, Steve Orlando, I'm a fan of your work. But let me tell you something. Everybody says that to everybody. So I was like, sure, Jan. Like, <laughs> you never. Uh, I can't but, believe you said sure, Jan, to Hickman. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he had to look it up. Uh, <laughs> um, Stop. But uh, but Jonathan, he really is. Like, he is he is an incredible creator himself. And he makes us all even even better creators. And that I think is a truly rare thing. So, uh, you know, not to put him over too hard, but, but he is, 
he is a, a singular type of creator. Okay. Well, speaking of pushing yourself on a creative front and doing new and exciting stories, one of the things that I thought we were going to get in Marauders, and I talked about, we talked about this with Leah, was Dakin and Aurora and Somnus. I thought we were going to see like a quintessential love triangle. And these first two issues of Marauders, we have not. It is actually the complete opposite of that. And we see Aurora being extremely supportive of Somnus. And I'm curious about your approach to that throuple relationship. What, what, what's happening there? Well, I think, you know, if what I, I think there are plenty of people who would have done that. And there's nothing wrong with that story, by the way. But, you know, like I said, for myself, I try not to repeat myself. And I try to always do something that I haven't seen before. Uh, And the thing I haven't seen before is, A, you know, a person like Akihiro being bisexual, talking about being bisexual while in a relationship with a woman, which, by the way, like he's still bisexual. When I've dated women, I'm still bisexual. Um, And so what I hadn't seen before is, is, what you have with Aurora where she's not threatened by those things. You know, she's not threatened to know that, you know, Akihiro and, and Somnus spent a subjective lifetime throwing their dicks in each other. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> and, like and so that, that level of, of, of acceptance and, and, and support um, again, that's something I hadn't seen before. And would someone else have done it differently? Almost definitely. I mean, everyone would do anything differently, but for me, this is what I wanted to show. And in the same way, by the way, I wanted to um, I wanted to show that Somnus was not intimidated by Akihiro being with a woman, you know, like and, and also in a practical sense. I mean, he just got a second chance at, at, to, to come back in his prime. The last thing I think he wants to do is tie himself down to any one particular person, as you'll see play out uh, in, in the book going forward. Um, and yeah, this is like I'm always trying to offer folks a facet uh, when it comes to characters that, that I at least have never seen before. And this particular arrangement isn't one I'd seen. For better or worse, we'd seen these type of love triangles before. And that doesn't mean that maybe there won't be one for Somnus down the road. Um, but again, I, you know, folks deserve new ideas. They deserve things at least that have a different lens. And that's where this came from, you know, like uh, Aurora herself has been through so much and overcome so much. She just didn't seem to me like the jealous type where she is uh, in her current journey. And and more than that, like, you know, Akihiro is a lot like me in that he is sort of a curmudgeonly type of person. Uh, And I have been in the situation where many people, not necessarily my exes, but uh, but we're but like different groups of friends who know me very well immediately get along. And the thing they get along about is about knowing that I am a stupid idiot. So um, I, that energy, again, it was something I hadn't seen before. Like there can, you can have a breakup that goes well, you can have a strong relationship with someone who you're not with anymore. And, and, and I, yeah, yeah. It's just not something that we had seen. It's not that there will not be tension for somnus elsewhere, but for me, I just want to show folks something new and, and it, hopefully it's well-received, but that's always where I'm coming from. Well, no, I love that. I mean, I studied narratology in college, and one of the things that I have found so refreshing in the Crocone age has been the redefinition of that Gene, Scott, Logan relationship. And it's far more interesting right now in that are they or are they not a throuple kind of situation versus them like the boys fighting over the girls it's just an antiquated way of telling a story there's like countless decades of that happening i think 
what you're showing now in Marauders 2 is sort of a herald for that new type of storytelling where it's really pushing things in the right direction in an innovative way. Well, yeah. And, you know, and in a practical sense, they, they are Krakoa in, in an in-story sense is like mutants are trying to not do things the human way. You know, it's a conscious effort. Look at what Sai's been doing in, well, first way of X and now Legion of X. Like they're not trying to do things the way that they've always done them just because or the way that humans have always done them just because. So that's something that I think about a lot in Marauders, both in regards to what you're talking about, but also in regards to, you know, what constitutes a rescue mission uh, because mutant culture is not bound by the same things as human culture. You know, like most people probably would not think that folks that are 2 billion years old are <laughs> available to be rescued, you know? But when you have a culture where it's relatively common to have like, you know, your neighbor is chronokinetic, uh, you know, there's different rules. Uh, and, and I think that mutant thinking is something that I consider a lot uh in Marauders. And I sort of got that from when I was doing Martian Manhunter and we were inventing all of Mars culture from the ground up. And something that Riley and I would talk about a lot is like, well, are we having these characters do this because it's just what makes sense to us as humans? And the challenge there was like, you know, we are humans. And the challenge was to not think like a human, you know, how successful were we? You know, your mileage may vary, but I, that's also the challenge in Marauders, you know, for folks, we are trying to reinvent the way that they approach everything, not just punching the bad guy or life and death, but everything in between. To circle back a little bit, I'm, I'm like a huge fanatical North Star fan. Uh, Paul knows that and has heard me go on too much, probably. Um, the internet has heard. And the seen internet. <laughs> um, North Star. And it's like, it's really interesting to see Aurora off on her own and not just like the same cycle of like Jean Paul and like Aurora and all that. Now she's off sort of living her own experiences. I mean, I would love to have to do to get some time with Kyle and Jean Paul in the future. It's just page space, my friend. Um, that said, I have, uh, I did create a new North star for the 2099 series. I can't tell you more about him because that's a big old spoiler, but if you thought I wasn't gonna create new X characters for the X-Men 2099 focused issue, along with some of the, all of the classics, you're, you're crazy. So there is, um, there's completely new characters. And then there is also a new Cyclops, a new Phoenix and a new North Star. Okay, I've been living under a rock. I didn't know a new X-Men 2099 was coming out. Well, there is a, I'm, there's a 2099 30th anniversary series of which the first issue came out this week that I'm the writer of. And yes, there will certainly be an X-Men focused issue. I this cannot. series is Spider-Man 2099. So this is probably why you like. Yeah, why it wasn't on my radar. But I'm I'm obsessed with X-Men 2099. I just got the trade. I reread it as an adult. I The Toy Biz action figures, like from back in the day, those you five inches. But you were really happy about Brimstone Levi's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right, I'm excited now. I mean, and he's going to heal. He'll be around again. Uh, you know, like I, I the, my favorite little one page scenes to write are the detective Lockheed scenes, uh, of which I think we've had two now. I, I always forget what's in what just because I mean, for reference, I'm writing issue eight this week. So if I seem like, oh, which what happened and what issue like issue two came out and I wrote that like in September. So I, I'm always trying to not accidentally give you guys info that hasn't happened yet. But I know there's been at least one detective Lockheed scene. What's the status of La Lunatica? Yeah, I love her. Um, I, 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 can't, I think, 
So she, I, I will, I mean, I try to not like tease people necessarily. She's not in the X-Men book on this page, but that doesn't mean that she is dead there. I do reference a team. There's only so many people I could put in a 20 page issue. So I do reference a team that is off doing other things called, because there was a team called the Expeditioners, uh, which God love you. I think Joe Kelly did that. Um, but so it was easy. To, it was, it was too easy to not be like, you know, well, certain people are off with the expeditioners. So she's not in it, but as to will she appear in the future? I do really like the character. Um, I can't recall if she is alive. I thought she might've died in like manifest destiny, but I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, but I love the character to answer your question. I mean, my favorite as a kid was crystalline and Skullfire. Yeah. Uh, my favorite as an adult is besides the new ones that I made, uh, is almost gotta be Cerebra. Um, I think that she's more historic than people think. I think she is probably the first Indian mutant character. I mean, she debuted in 1992 or 1991. And because it's 2099, everybody's like, nobody thinks of it, but I believe she might be a history making character. I could be wrong. I'm not like saying that I'm the final answer there, but I also could be right. It's a perfect I need to ask about, there was a character in 2099 called December Frost, who may or may not have been tied to Miss Emma Frost. Will we get a, will you get some kind of closure on that? It's, I'm I sorry, mean, I'm asking you for spoilers. I am so sorry. I invited you on. I, I, I mean, but I also don't like to tease people. I'm aware of December Frost. It is on the list of things that I did not have time for in the book, along with the tribe of gun-wielding nuns. Uh, and i whose name escapes me right now but it's a really good fucking name uh so and i almost want to try to introduce them in the main book uh so so you know with that again we'll see uh there's a lot of stuff that again it's 20 pages and we have to push the main story along i wish i could have had more time because i fucking love i mean also kim jacinto's drawing it is fucking amazing um but the nice thing about 2099 is, you know, like with Brimstone Love, everybody was like, oh, he traveled back in time. I was like, you know, resurrection exists, A, and B, 2099 is 70 years from now, my friend. So that bitch is just alive. Like, it's actually simpler <laughs> than you think. Uh, he's just here. Um, so anything is possible is what I would say. But that specific thing is something I was aware of. Uh, there's a couple others that, you know, I don't have the list in front of me in my little scratch list, but there was the nuns. Uh, there was another character that I've been asked about that I do actually really like, but I couldn't fit in. Uh, but again, you'll find out very soon in the summer when this issue comes out. Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't know you were doing 2099. I'm obsessed with 2099. And ever since I've been a little kid, I've been like, I hope I live long enough to be alive in the year 2099. <laughs> and I want to see what Marvel will do when that actually comes to fruition. I probably won't because I'm almost 40. So I'm I'm also almost forty, uh, so we'll see. If Maybe I'll just be like a fucking Futurama head in a jar. God, I would hope that. Oh. Jesus, I want that more than anything. Steve, we asked before we let you go. We asked our our community for some listener questions. There were a lot of thirsty questions that we will spare you from. Well, I'm kind of fascinated by what people would be saying. Perfect. All right. So from CJB, the last X-Man asks, Hellions featured a legacy team member. Would you consider any of the original Marauders? Uh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I loved Grey Crow uh, and he will absolutely appear in Marauders. Will he join the team? Uh, that remains to be seen, but the answer is absolutely would I consider it. 
Um, and I also have looked at, I believe his name is Harpoon. And it's not a spoiler because he's not in the book, but I do think speaking about historic things, I think he might be one of the first, uh, I believe he is um, indigenous Alaskan uh, with his background. I think he might actually be one of the first ones. So I would love to find a way to make that character work, uh, but that is not a spoiler because I will tell you, I haven't found a way yet. Uh, but the answer is yes, of course. Question from DNA 7077. Will there be any follow-up to Darkhold? Uh, yes. <laughs> Perfect. It's a, speed round. it's a speed round. Perfect. Speed round. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Who is from Emerald Comics? Question. Who is your favorite Marauder to write? <laughs> well, you got to give me a couple more because it's, it's obviously from this content, Cassandra Nova. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Time travel. Yay or nay? Asks Kid Wolf. Uh, yay. Tempo is on the team for a reason. Speed answer so we can get a lot done. Okay, Namor Cosplay asks, will we ever get Namor popping out of the sea saying hello and maybe flirting with Emma? Uh, well, Emma's not in my book, but I do love Namor. And I also love his cousin who's also a mutant, Namora. So they're on my, they're on my blue sky list. Greg House asks, if you could form your own X-Men team without limits, what would it be? Uh, it will appear in the X-Men 2099 issue of 2099's 30th anniversary. Uh, yeah, that's a good answer because I fucking love that team. All right. Hey, Steve, not asking for future spoilers, but any love for skids? Lots of love. Haven't found a way to use her yet, but <laughs> that is, we're, we're speed rounding them. So yes. Uh, comment. And I think this should be the last one. Comment. Zaddy. <laughs> I don't really know what that means. So now you've summed up my personality uh, very well. I'm really out of touch with what the kids are saying these days. Steve, where can the folks at home connect with you? Well, I'm on Twitter at the Steve Orlando when I'm not being hacked like I was last week to sell fucking shoes. But I'm on. I'm back. Fuck those people. I'm back at Steve Orlando, Instagram at the Steve Orlando. And that is how you should contact me. You might see me on Facebook. In all honesty, I try to keep that for, you know, personal stuff, people who know me from my real, from my, from my past life. Uh, but I'm very accessible on Instagram and Twitter. So it's easy to find me there. Folks, that's our interview with Steve Orlando. Obviously, we're so excited that X-Men 2099 is coming back, but our heads are no longer in the future. They're actually in the present, and we are ending this episode with a Demanda Martini read about Cable! Hi, Power of X-Men podcast. It's me again, Demanda Martini, and I am here backstage at the importance of being earnest at Poor Tobacco Players in order to bring you a special read about Cable. Cable just never seemed that interesting to me. He was your basic trope of a man with a mysterious past who shot first, asked questions later, carried around big guns, always had something smart-alecky to say, and didn't take any crap from anybody. Oh, just so... Mm. The most interesting thing that happened to Cable in his storyline is the fact that his own mother wanted to sacrifice him to bring hell on Earth in order to get back at his father. If only a connection to the Summers family would also prove interesting for characters like Adam X. The Shade! 
Folks, that wraps our episode this week. You can hit me up at Power of X-Men on Instagram, and you can hit up Scott at Mr. Scott Free on both Instagram and Twitter. We'll see you next time. Well, thanks, sugar. The age of apocalypse is now over, and we'll see you next time. The age of apocalypse is over for now.